You're listening to the First Corinthians When Immaturity Meets Worldliness series preached by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. First Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, if you'll turn there. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to start there and read the whole chapter and get the context again. And then work our way through chapter 8, at least to verse number 9 this morning. And Lord willing, we will finish chapter 8 next week. So, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, starting at verse number 1. Paul speaking to the Corinthians. Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but charity edifies. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. For though there be that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. Howbeit, there is not in every man that knowledge. For some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see that which hath knowledge sit at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Wherefore, if meat or food make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. We've been working our way through the book of Corinthians, and I want to remind you how we began the book. We are introduced to the Corinthian believers, and they are in a mess. A mess. Not only are they immature in their faith, but they are also worldly. And so Paul now takes this epistle, this letter, and he works his way through a number of problems for the Corinthians. But, but I want you to remember how we started this book. If you can, I will help you. Um, one of the things in Corinth was this idea of wisdom, sophia, or, or knowledge. And the idea was that knowledge is everything. They lived in a society that that knowledge and those who could speak rhetoric was highly prized. And so if you were a speaker, you could express yourself, and you could give an argument, and you were as smooth as butter, you were someone there. And that really is the conflict that these believers are having with Paul because Apollos comes in, and he is smooth. I mean, he's got it together. And they're saying to Paul, listen, we have wisdom, we have knowledge, and you don't have any. And it became a church that 
mirrored their culture, a culture which was so obsessed with status and what they knew and who they knew. It was important to them. And so in the church then, you had people who were so consumed with having knowledge and this wisdom that no one else had, and look who I know and look who I am. And so they would schmooze. What a word, schmoozes, isn't it? Schmooze. They were schmoozers. I know so-and-so. The church became full of schmoozers and schmigglers and poo-pooblers, all right? According to Dr. Seuss. Okay, that's, that's, that's where that comes from. Okay. It was a mess. And they have this deal that they think they know. They think they have knowledge. And Paul says you don't. So we see throughout this whole book, the book of Corinthians, as you work your way through, the word knowledge or know or wise or wisdom is found over 60, I think it's 67 times. It's a problem there. And in chapter 8, the chapter we just read, know and knowledge is found eight times in only... 13 verses. And, and so Paul, again, is going back to this idea that they think they know, and they don't know. And the word knowledge and wisdom and knowing, it became like a buzzword. They loved the word. They wanted to hear the word. They wanted to, to, to think that you to think that they knew the word. They embraced it. They gloried in it. But the truth is, as you work your way through Corinthians, we find Paul telling them, you don't know what real knowledge is. There's an old movie that I, I really enjoy. It's, it's one of my favorites. Um, it's called The Princess Bride. If you've ever seen the movie, it's, it's an adventure, comedy kind of deal. And um, in this particular movie, there's this short guy. He's a genius. I think his name is Vecini or something like that. Um, and he's always using this word, inconceivable. He uses it over and over and over again. And so things happen, and he says, that's inconceivable. He has a list, but he does it that way. I won't do it that way, but inconceivable. And he uses it over and over again. And finally, one of his companions, a Spaniard, says, I don't think that word means what you think it means. And for the Corinthian church, who talked so much about knowledge and knowing, they had no idea. Paul, a matter of fact, in chapter 1, had to correct them and say, listen, if you want to know what wisdom is, he says in chapter 1, Jesus Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And here in chapter 8, we're reminded once again, when knowledge is not informed by faith or directed by love, at the very least, it's incomplete. The worst, it's dangerous or destructive. And so we read our text, and again, maybe you're here for the first time, you didn't catch it last week, but you read this text, and Paul's speaking about Christian freedom, Christian liberty, and you think, what in the world does that have to do with us, about food offered to idols, about pagan temples? Let me remind you this morning that what was happening here was part of everyday life in the Gentile world. This was not uncommon. When Paul wrote to the Corinthians, they knew exactly what he was talking about. You would, in that day, if you were not a believer, not a Jew, you would go to the pagan temple. There you would offer sacrifice to that God, that deity. Maybe it was a God that you worship because he, was, he brought you luck or fortune. He was in charge of your fate or, or she promised you whatever. You'd make a small sacrifice to that God. You'd honor and worship them. And then you would share a meal. And, and this was not uncommon. It happened all the time. If you were part of a trade union, a guild, 
or um, a club or even a social gathering for a dinner, you would go as a Gentile to the temple, make a sacrifice to this God, and have dinner there. We said last week it would be the equivalent of a, a modern-day restaurant. The difference would be we'd go to McDonald's, we'd take something there to make a sacrifice to Grimace or the Hamburglar, all right, or Ronald, and then we'd enjoy a delicious, um, not-real hamburger. Okay? And, and that, would be, that would be the equivalent of that. And so Paul then comes to town in this culture. He starts preaching. He's just preaching. And he preaches the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Deliverance from sin. From the power of sin. From the penalty of sin. From the bondage of sin. And what happens is, people get saved. They're converted. And so Paul stays there, and he teaches them, and he instructs them about idolatry and wickedness in the Christian life. And then he takes off. And now he's been gone for maybe almost three years, and they're corresponding back and forth. And what happened is when Paul left, there were some believers then who were saved from that, that lifestyle who then started going back to the temple, making a sacrifice, and having a meal. And Paul is not impressed. And so he writes back to them, and this is a, a bone of contention there. They're, they're arguing for their right and their freedom and their liberty to do this. And here was their argument. Paul, we have knowledge. And again, it's this buzzword. We, we have, we know. I'm not stupid. Let me explain something to you. We have knowledge, and here's what we know. We know that idols are nothing. Nothing. It, it's like the Easter Bunny. I'm sorry, there's some children here. The Easter Bunny does not exist. Okay, I know some adults, you look shocked at that. He's, he's not real. And what they're saying is, hey, those idols, they're not real, Paul. We believe in the one true God. Therefore, when we go to the temple and we make this sacrifice, we're just having a meal with our friends. We're enjoying family, maybe even with other believers. And so it really doesn't matter because we're not making a sacrifice to something that doesn't exist. And here's what Paul does. And he does this a couple times in the chapter. It's really important. He agrees with their premise. Idols are nothing, and there is one God. But he draws a different conclusion. And, and let me tell you something. Paul's conclusion is right, and theirs is wrong. He's an apostle, spirit-filled, and he gives his answer. And so here's what he says to them saying, hey, we know. Look at verse number 6 of our text this morning. And we spent lots of time on this last week. We won't spend as much time, but I just want to come back here. But to us, there is but one God. Paul's now taking their argument, and now he's going to qualify it, and now he's going he's to he's ratchet it up. He's going to amp it up here. The Father, of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. And so the Corinthians are saying, listen, our activities are based on what we know. We know that idols are nothing. We know that there's only one God. And Paul says, okay, wait a minute. You, you know that, but listen, let me tell you about this God that you know. He calls him Father. It's this relationship of God as the Father with his children through the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And what Paul says is, this God that you know has revealed himself through Jesus Christ. Everything, creation, redemption, come through him. This redemptive activity, and, and it, just hang on there, stay with me now. Because what he's saying is, the parameters 
of what you do and why you do what you do. It's not just knowledge of this, but it's in this redemptive plan of God. We call this the gospel. That's what you find in verse number 6. This is the gospel. And Paul says, you're doing stuff because you know your knowledge is incomplete because this is the God that we serve. He has redeemed us. And Paul will address this issue and their attitudes in light of the gospel. Now listen to me this morning. And this is not hyperbole. This is not dramatic flair. Listen closely. Paul's going to address this situation in light of the gospel. It's important for us to realize every problem that we face, every one of them, every problem we face, the answer is rooted in the gospel. Some of you are not buying that. But I'm telling you the truth this morning. When Paul argues, he always goes back to the truth of the gospel. And, and my fear this morning is this. We at this church talk so much about the gospel, right? We are a gospel-preaching, gospel-teaching, gospel-centric, gospel-centered, gospel-parenting, gospel-eating. We are gospel people. And I think sometimes we throw that around, and just like the Corinthian believers who threw knowledge around that they had it all together, we don't. And right now, some of you, trust me, you're already zoning out because you've heard the gospel so many times. like, I hear this every week, Pastor. We've been here. We've done that. We bought the t-shirts. We burned them. Let's move on from here. There's a problem. You can't move on from here. This is the beginning and this is the end. This is the A to Z, or Z, as those Americans say. This is it. And so we have to understand, when Paul addresses these folks, he gives them the gospel. So my question to you this morning is this. Has the gospel, the word, become a buzzword to you? I mean, do you use it and even realize what it means? Let's, let's do an experiment this morning, can we? Let, let me be finished talking for a minute. Now that I know that's like, yes, finally, you're done. No, not done with the message, but done talking for a moment, okay? If I were to ask you this morning, what's the gospel? Now listen, I'm not looking for a theological discourse this morning. Give me, if you can, one or two small things that you say, Pastor, when I think about the gospel, this is what I believe it to be. Okay? Okay, that's a good start. Who said that? Honey, truth. Okay, that's a good start. One word answers are fine as well. Good. Someone else had their hand up? Good, brother. Wait. Freedom. Okay, good. Rick? Jesus died for my sins. All right, good. Yes, Shelly? A way of life. Okay, Eric? Faith in the promise. Diane? I'm a sinner saved by grace. Eva? Good news. What? Construction. Oh, that's, okay, that about construction. That's really cool. I'd like to hear more from you about that. Instruction. Okay. Anything else? Ian, I knew you'd speak sooner or later. Good news about Jesus. Anything else? You want to add anything to that? 
Redemption, it's a good word. Anything else? Resurrection, what? The words he spoke while he was here? Okay. Are we all good so far? You got it covered? We're okay? We'll just move on? Okay. Well, let, me, let, me, let me just help. These were all good answers. They were, they were good and they were interesting. And, and let's just sort of combine them together and let's get it together this morning what the gospel is. First of all, I think we could all agree, and it wasn't mentioned, but I think in, in light of what we said, that the first thing about the gospel is that there's a God who we're accountable to. Right? There is a God in heaven who we're accountable to. That, that's, that's the beginning. The second thing is, this God to whom we're accountable to, we have sinned against him. We have rebelled against him. The words redemption and sinner and grace and freedom, that has that ring to that. Number three, it's important, and this was said quite often, I think this is where we go first, that God's answer for man's sinfulness comes in only one form, the person of Jesus Christ. Period. His answer for us is not in good works, it's not in religion, it's not doing the best you can, it's not weighing things out, hoping for the best at the end. It comes through the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. And the only way to appropriate this is by repentance and faith. Okay? This is a gospel. Now listen to me. If that, what we just said, if that is true, it changes everything. And if it's not, we should all go home. And I'm, I'm dead serious. If, if what the gospel is, and we, we talk, what the, if this is not true, let's pack our bags and let's forget about it because it's not worth it if that's not true. This morning, I'm telling you, on the authority of the Word of God and a risen Christ, that is true. That's truth. It's the greatest truth you can ever hear or experience. But now listen to me. Knowing this gospel has implications. And this is where we blow it sometimes as we read scriptures, we try to live our life. I got the gospel, but, but listen to me. It has implications, first off, and we know this. This is a big one. We get this. It has implications for eternity. For eternity. There is a God in heaven to whom all men and women will give an account. And in that day, it will not be enough to say, I didn't know, I did my best, I wasn't sure, I was religious, I was baptized. It will not work. This God, who is loving, who is kind, who is a father, who, he is holy, righteous, and just. He hates all sin, your sin, my sin, and he will judge that sin someday in a place called hell forever. And mankind today is underneath the condemnation of God right now. You don't have to do anything. You're there. And so this message has eternal implications. And listen to me, some of you folks, you, you hear this, and it, it just goes off your back like water off of a duck because you've heard it so many times, but listen to me, this applies to you, it applies to me. If you're here without Christ, and this gospel becomes a buzzword for you, oh yeah, yeah, I know that, I got it. And you, you never act upon it. Listen to me, the gospel will do one of two things. It will either harden your heart, that you've heard it and I'm done, I don't need that, or it will break your heart. You'll have to respond to it. It has implications for you for eternity and for us. Listen to me. 
this eternal gospel has implications for my father and my mother and my brother and my sister and my family and my friends and my neighbors and the kids I run with. Without this message, they will be eternally lost. It has implications for eternity. I think sometimes we talk about the gospel, how important it is, and we want to live out the gospel, and we want to talk about the gospel, and we're gospel-centric, but we never understand the weight of this gospel. It is weighty. We don't play with it. We don't toy with it. We don't disregard it. It's weighty. Now, for many of us, this is where we stop. Yeah, you're right, Pastor, that's it. It's got eternal implications, and therefore I'm glad, whew, I'm saved, I'm born again, I got the gospel. But wait a minute, it doesn't stop there. It has implications for not only eternity, but everyday life. 1 Corinthians, you want to turn there, I'm just going to quote it for you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and 2 Corinthians 2, 15. Paul is talking... First in wisdom in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he's talking about the savor of life and death in chapter 2 of 2 Corinthians. It doesn't matter. The phrase he uses is, those that are saved. And, and the usage of the verb in both those areas, it literally means to those who are being saved. My salvation is, I am saved. I was saved. Um, I am being saved. And I will be saved. It has implications for everyday life. Um, because this God that I give account to is still God after I trust him. And I will give an account for him the way I live my life outside of this building. This is where the gospel comes in again. God is God. I'm accountable to him. He is holy. He's righteous and just. And so when I leave this place, it really does matter how I live at home. Oh, passion at home, we just kick off our shoes and it's just who we are. I get it. We're all that. But this gospel ought to be changing me at home. I should not be the same man or woman or husband or father or teenager that I once was. It has implications for everyday life. My life at work is now to be a testimony of this God who I love and serve and who gave everything for me. Those are the implications. It's every day. This gospel helps me in everyday life realize that and remind me that I'm a sinner. Every one of us who know Christ, you know Christ's Savior, you had to start with this point, I'm a sinner in need of grace, right? So why is it now that after we're saved, we think we're not sinners anymore? Brother, you are. Sister, you really are. Pastor, you are. Yes. Yes. And so if that's the case and I know that I'm a sinner in need of grace, why is it that when people correct me and love me and criticize me for what's wrong, I get all bent out of shape? I get defensive. I get mad about it. As if now somehow I'm not a sinner in need of grace. I still am. So when my wife says something to me that she's right on and I don't like it, I might not like it at first, but I've got to remember, why should I be surprised? I'm a sinner. You married me. We're sinners. And it should not surprise us then in our everyday life that people that we rub shoulders with are sinners too. I can't believe. Can I tell you something, brother? I believe almost every, I, I, nothing. I shouldn't say that. But almost nothing surprises me anymore. 
Can you believe he did? Can you believe she said, yeah, I can. Why? Because they're sinners like we are. This Jesus, this gospel that he saved me and now I belong to him. He is my master. He is my Lord. He is my rabbi, my teacher. I'm his disciple. And so in my life then, every day, I should be longing to be like him. How he loves. How he forgives. How he treats those who are marginalized in society. Some of us think that this decision we made was a momentary decision. I did that. No, the gospel is saving us. J.C. Ryle says, sin forsaken is one of the best evidences of sin forgiven. And in our everyday life, there should be evidence that we are forsaking those things that bring him dishonor and shame. So the gospel has implications for eternity, for everyday life. And, and let me give you this last one. And I know what you're thinking. Okay, pastor, you're on this rabbit trail. I have no idea where you're going. You do this quite often, and I don't know what's going on here. I'm going to bring it back around, so just stay with me, okay? This is, a, this is on purpose. The third implication of the gospel. Eternity, everyday life, and when it comes to edifying other believers in the body of Christ. And if you doubt that, back in our text, verses 7 through 13, that's exactly what he is talking about. You, you, you may not have this on the screen, but look at verse 11 if you have your Bible open. He says, And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. This gospel that Paul starts with in verse number 6 and reminds him of what he's saying is, look at this has ramifications on how you treat your brother and sister in Christ. Some of you folks, you're really screwed up on what church is about. You think church is showing up on Sunday, doing your time, and getting out of here as fast as the doors open. And I get that sometimes. Sometimes I want to get out of here as fast as the doors open. I can't. I've got to work my way through, all right, or sneak out the side. But that's not, that's not God's design. It's community. It's community. It's saying God has saved me. God has forgiven me. He's forgiven you. We're now brothers and sisters in Christ. And now, working this gospel out is rubbing shoulders with people I don't even like sometimes. Working out with people that, I got to tell you, I don't know what planet they came from, but, but I got to work this thing out. If we were on the street, I would never talk to these people. I mean, can you believe what side of the track they came from? I don't know what side that is in Chatham, maybe the east side, I don't know, south, I don't know. I, I would never. He says, wait a minute, this gospel that changes us has implications on how we treat people here. My good friend, Mark Dever, who really isn't my good friend, I just met him one time and shook his hand. Um, I, just, I just wanted to say that. Um, but he writes great books. He said this, the Christian proclamation might make the gospel audible, but Christian living together in local communities, makes the gospel visible. We don't leave the gospel. We work it out here. That's why the church of Jesus Christ should not be like your office or the neighborhood get-togethers. It should never be full of gossip and criticism and bitterness 
and envies and jealousy and all the nonsense that happens outside in the world. Because when people look here to this, and this is the church, redeemed, saved, sanctified believers coming together in community, when they see this, they should say, listen, can you believe how they love one another? Can you believe how they care for one another? Can you believe how they sacrifice for one another? Can you believe that here is a doctor and lawyer and here's the guy from the garbage collecting and here's the plumber and here's the person of a job, here's a single divorce, they're together and they love each other. Don't miss this, my beloved, because Paul says this gospel, when he's talking to their attitude toward each other, should be changing what they're doing in regard to the brothers and sisters in Christ. Okay, verse number seven. Where we, that's what, that's verse number seven. How be it? Okay, this is, they know that there's you know, one God, idols don't matter. How be it? There is not in every man that knowledge, and that's the knowledge he's talking about. Okay? For some with conscience, and the conscience is that inner referee that tells us right or wrong, right? The siren goes off, don't do that, not a good idea, you know. Maybe the Jimmy Cricket kind of, don't do that. That's not good. Some with conscience of the idol unto this hour eat it as a thing offered unto an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. You say, wait a minute, Paul's talking to believers. How could believers not know that that's just an idol? And, and, and you'll get this. What he's talking about here is they know theoretically, yes, there's one God, no idols, but experimentally and emotionally, when they go to this temple, the first thing they're thinking about is my old life. I used to worship to that idol. There is, there is this power, um, this, um, the old associations, and they are powerful. And, and here are believers that they'd go to the temple, and when they went to the temple, they, they didn't know about the Easter bunny. They were worshiping him. And we understand old associations, don't we? I mean, th- th- to this day, I am 45. To this day... There is a, a certain smell when I smell it. It's a certain kind of perfume. When I smell it, I don't even know if they make it anymore, but when I smell it, um, or a, a certain lip, what would they call those things? Lip? What? Oh, gloss. Lip gloss. Strawberry? Um, if I smell, if I were to smell strawberry lip gloss, it would take me back to when I was 14 or 15 years old. Like that. Not that I was kissing her, I was just smelling her lip gloss. You understand that. There are places I drive by, there are homes I drive by, my wife and I will drive by a home, and, and we will be grieved because the associations with that place and what happened there. There's a city we drive by every now and then, and we're depressed when we drive by that city. It's not Tilbury, right? It's not. It's, it's not. Tilbury's a great place. Good people live there. It's a great little town. It's a different place. Um, but those are old associations, right? And, and these folks, they were saved, and, and when they went back to the the temple, it's like, oh my goodness, I, I remember, I, I worshipped that idol. And Paul says, you have knowledge or right, but it's incomplete because you're not even thinking about these brothers or sisters who are really struggling here. And I, I know, I know what you're thinking. Th- this still has nothing to do with us, but, but hold on, it does. And, and if you don't get it this week, you've got to come back next week, we'll finish it up for you, okay? This is a cliffhanger, you've got to be back. But, but there is a purpose here, okay? Look at verse number um, 8. 
And, uh, and, I, and I do believe in verse number 8 that um, this is, again, their argument. Maybe they're quoting what Paul has said earlier, but remember, they want to defend their rights. And so they say, but, but meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, uh, neither if we eat not are we the worse. And so what they're saying is, hey, Paul, we're doing this. We know there's one true God, and we know that what you eat really doesn't matter to him. I mean, I'm not going to get acceptance by God because I, I ate a salami sandwich or I didn't eat that pork, pulled pork sandwich. It doesn't have anything to do with God. And we say, duh, that's a no-brainer. Who would think that it would be accepted by God by what they ate? But before you get all hoity-toity on me and act like the Corinthians are crazy because they, they would assume that what I ate or what I didn't eat would make me closer and acceptable to God, I wonder how many times in our own lives as Christians that we honestly believe that the things that we do make us acceptable to God. Pastor, I read my Bible last week. I had no idea what it said. But I read it. And so God now is, I'm, I'm more acceptable in his sight. I pray, I mean, we had dinner five times last week, and I remember praying twice. And so God certainly accepts me. I, I put money in the plate. I threw $2 in this week. Two, I, I, and I, I didn't hurt, I just did it. And, and certainly God is pleased with that. I woke up this morning, I was happy. You know, I'm walking on sunshine. It was a good day, and I, I just feel today I am, I am just acceptable by God. Acceptable to God. And we think that. Can I tell you something? The only reason that you and I are ever acceptable in his presence is because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. It's not about food. It's not about circumcision. It's not about what you do or you don't do. Let me just read for you uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, if I can find it here. Verses, uh, we'll start from 3 and we'll work our way down maybe to 7. Uh, just to, to prove the point. And then we're going to move on. I know we're getting close, so just hang on. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of the children of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Now watch verse 6. To the praise of his glory, of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. And it goes on. It's a great portion. You should read it. Listen, what he's saying is this. The only reason I am ever accepted in God's presence is not because of what I've done or what I haven't done. It's because of Jesus Christ. And in him there is always acceptance because he is perfect. Now listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not telling you, quit reading your Bible, quit praying, quit going to church, quit giving. No. But that doesn't make me acceptable. I do those things because I am accepted, because I do love him, because he has saved me, and it's, I want to know him, I want to love him, I want to serve him. And so Paul says, hey, you're right. Food doesn't get you there. But they thought, their conclusion was, therefore, it doesn't matter what I eat, where I eat, when I eat, with whom I eat. And Paul said, no, wait a minute. There's a problem with that. Look at verse number 9. But take heed, lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Paul says, you know what, you're right. Food doesn't matter. 
Since food doesn't matter, don't allow your liberty to destroy the life of somebody else. Now listen, there are lots of applications for this, and and we're not going to really get into them this morning. I'm going to be done in just a second. But I want to say something to you this morning. Believer, we deal with freedoms and liberties. We have rights, we have freedom, we have liberty. And too often, for many of us, we think because we know something, that's the only parameter I have on what I do and what I don't do. And Paul would say to you, not true. There's another parameter. It's, do your actions, are they capable of destroying the life of another believer? And, and there are lots of ramifications. We're going to talk about the weaker brother. We're going to talk about offending people, what that really means. But in our lives, there are things that we hold on to tenaciously that we say, this is my right, and, I, and I'm going to do this, and I don't care what anybody says, what anybody thinks, what anybody feels, because I'm free in Christ. And Paul says, no, you don't understand your freedom. You're not free to do whatever you want to. We are free to love him, to serve him, and please him. And part of that freedom is wrapped up in the body of Christ and community. And so I want you this week to go back to the text. I want you to read it. I want you to say, God, is there something in my life that I tenaciously hold on to that I say, this is my right and I will do this no matter what? Or am I willing to hold these things loosely for the good of other people? And for some of you right now, it's like, I couldn't care less. And that's a problem. Because you don't understand that Christ died for the church. And that brother or sister that you couldn't care less about, he died for them. And Paul says in verse number 12, when you wound them, you wound that brother or sister. You wound Christ. Your sin is not just against them, against him. And so I want you to know something this morning. In this text, I think if I was to boil down what we're talking about this morning, if you're completely lost, if I completely lost you in the process, the gospel does matter. As implications for everything in our life, as implications for how we live this life in church. And the bottom line, Paul says, when we decide what we're going to do, we have to factor in caring for other people. Do you care? Do you care at all for people in this church? Do you care about their struggles? Do you, you care about their personal demons? Do you care about their past? Do you, or does it, I show up, I do my, I'm out of here. Paul says, Christ died. He died for you. He died for them. We ought to care. Let's have a word of prayer this morning.